Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. This is the built-in California series, and I'm super stoked, super excited to bring you this next founder who's doing like some hardcore stuff in industrial innovation. Uh, he is the co-founder of a, of a startup uh, called Industrial Next. Lucas Pankow, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Matt. Listen, the privilege really is all mine. I think what I'm super excited to get into uh, with you today is all the rad shit you were doing at Tesla. Uh, <laughs> so it's super cool. Uh, so, uh, but for I've had the privilege of obviously getting to know you and and you know getting to know a little bit more around what you're doing, um, you know, as a team and as a startup. Uh, but for our viewers and around the world who haven't heard about uh, Industrial Next, give us the elevator pitch. What do we need to know? Absolutely. Uh, so firstly, thank you again for, for having me. Uh, so we at Industrial Next, we're building modular and fully autonomous factories uh, for manufacturing complex product. Uh, so like discrete manufacturing, effectively, where you take uh, take some product and you assemble it out of other subcomponents into this. And in our experience, this is not uh, not as automated as we think it should be uh, in the year 2022. And we're levering, leveraging a lot of the uh, knowledge and uh, experience we've gained at Tesla in ramping uh, the Model 3 and uh, other products to uh, sort of rethink manufacturing, uh, especially General Assembly from the ground up. So maybe let's start with the obvious one, because I know like, you know, I don't know many people that have like worked at Tesla and let alone do the kind of work that you did at Tesla. So could you unpack that for us? Like, what work were you actually doing? Because I think it's really important to set up, like, you know, why Industrial Nexus got such a great team and capability. So uh, unpack that for our audience around the world. Like, what were you actually doing at Tesla? Yeah, so uh, most of our work was uh, originally in the, except for my co-founder, Alan, uh, most of us were on the vehicle engineering side. And so we were defining the um, the uh, the electrical architecture, the general vehicle architecture, uh, autopilot architecture for uh, cars ranging from the Model X uh, all the way to uh, to Model Y and uh, Cybertruck and a few other products. And uh, at one point uh, during the Model Three days, uh, the company was struggling to uh, ramp up production to to the numbers that uh, that we needed to produce. Uh, and so a lot of us uh, went to the factory to help um, sort of rethink uh, how that uh, ramp is going. And so in a lot of cases, uh, we found a uh, kind of this gap in technology between industrial uh, manufacturing equipment in general and the things that we've done on the automotive side. And so we started introducing a lot of these things from a lot of this thinking from the automotive side, uh, especially around like architecting, what effectively is a very complicated robot, right? A car. Mm. Uh, architecting these uh, into uh, into these solutions that helped us build the car and scale the car. And mm. so one of the projects that we were involved in is uh, setting up that uh, that tent production line in the, in the back parking lot of the, the Fremont factory. And uh, I think we've 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 done we've done that in, in a very short uh, for industrial standards an extremely short uh, period of time, and uh, in a lot of cases there we've just eliminated the traditional automation equipment and started building it from the ground up with our own uh, our own things that that we've developed sort of as we needed them. Mm -hmm. So Lucas, um, I've got your website up for everybody. So let's let's talk about like industrial next. So your in this business of smart and adaptable manufacturing automation, right? So that that's your business. That's what you do. But why does this matter? Like, what's the problem uh, from from your perspective? Is it a case of like, well, you know, uh, manufacturing companies in general, like the current paradigm is such that manufacturing hasn't innovated as much as they could? Like, like what is the problem here? What are you trying to alleviate for manufacturing companies? So, uh, in 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 terms of manufacturing, uh, the there, there's always this uh, public perception that uh, you know the, these factories are running completely dark and just robots roaming around and assembling all of all, all of these products. And in most cases, that is just not true. Uh, factories, especially uh, especially manufacturing uh, around general assembly, is still incredibly manual. Uh, and uh, I, I think in the auto industry, something like the uh, the the average automation on General Assembly is somewhere like eight to ten percent. 
uh, of the of the entire process. And as you as you notice, uh, you know, rising labor costs worldwide, uh, this uh, obviously puts uh, puts pressure on manufacturers and companies in terms of building because now their cost of manufacturing the product itself has gone up. And so what we're uh, what we're trying to do is. Uh, one uh, attack this uh, sort of from an from an efficiency standpoint in terms of making this manufacturing more approachable uh, by offering better technology that can automate uh, these uh, traditionally hard to automate processes, uh, and that we're doing by uh, sort of rethinking the manufacturing process from first principles. Uh, because you know, in a lot of cases, like if we were to design a lot of these manufacturing from scratch today. Uh, without uh, what uh, a former uh, VP of Autopilot like to call shopping cart engineering, uh, by just picking everything that's available off the shelf. Uh, if we were to do this from scratch today, and you know, given the technology that we have across the board in other adjacent industries like consumer electronics, like automotive, and like uh, you know aerospace, uh, factory lines would look quite a bit different than they do today. And uh, so that is uh, the, the sort of the efficiency perspective uh, that, that we, we want to bring to manufacturers. But the second part is a little bit more uh, along the, the lines of uh, you know, climate and uh, supply chains. And especially the pandemic recently has shown uh, various challenges in you know, shipping all these goods around the world where you, know, you can you could sort of decarbonize the supply chain and, uh, and make that uh, you know, Sort of add these stopgap measures in there as well. But the best way to sort of remove the carbon from supply chain is to eliminate parts of the supply chain. And so what we ultimately want to enable is uh, kind of the mass market efficiency of manufacturing as it is today by just plopping one big factory somewhere in the world and then shipping products around and building with that same efficiency in smaller factories closer to the demand centers. Uh, where these products are consumed, uh, which in a lot of cases are higher cost of living countries. So what you're effectively doing is uh, allowing the uh, kind of the, the, the manufacturing of these, allowing these goods to still come at uh, reasonable prices to, for consumers, but you're building them now closer to the consumer themselves. Mm-hmm. So, um, so a couple of things here I want to I want us to unpack for our audience around the world. So the first thing I think we should start at unpacking at least is what makes automation in manufacturing hard? Because you know, like the one thing that like I just in my mind like when I think manufacturing and automation, like I think robots, I think lots of like sparks flying, machines doing its thing. Uh, you know, uh, but like no humans, like very little humans and the car goes from, you know, A to B on a production line or whatever the widget is or whatever the unit is. Um, and, you know, and, and by the way, like, like my dad, he was in like logistics, uh, f- like for many, many years, like before logistics was even a thing, like he was doing like hardcore logistics and he went to, I think it was in like the 1980s. He went to like the Audi factory in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was telling me how like then they have these massive like underground buildings, right? And so like if you wanted a Audi, I don't know, A3 back in the 80s, like the robots would like come down, like would fly up in the air and then they would like jack in and like pull the car down and then and the whole thing would just be like this like almost like the matrix you know like that scene where the robots are like coming Mm -hmm. in like it's like the final scene and then like all the everything would be automated and the cars would move and that was like back in the 80s you know what i mean so like and so i think about i think manufacturing as a as a perception that it's it is actually quite automated anyway so i'm curious to get your view like Am I wrong? Is that perception incorrect? Um, and what makes automating ma- anything in manufacturing difficult? Yeah, the, 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 the perception is uh, a little bit uh, driven, I think, by, by science fiction and uh, <laughs> you know, the stories in general. But I, I, I've also seen these uh, now, the, some company like Volkswagen, they like having like these big towers and they will put the car in. And then as you pick it up from the factory, they'll like I'll make a whole show out of like pulling it out and then sort of delivering it. That's and it. They're very cool. But the, what, uh, what, what happens in a lot of these, uh, these uh, solutions that kind of seem, seem so high tech and so futuristic is, you know, the robot is pre-programmed to go exactly from these points to these points. And if it encounters something changed, like if the car in that station is not exactly what it expected, it kind of falls out. Uh, because it 
doesn't know how to it doesn't actually understand what it's doing it's just following a set of instructions and that is sort of the the state of the art in robotics or not necessarily in robotics but in terms of manufacturer in industrial manufacturing where you have this all this technology and you you count on effectively the product not really changing throughout the production run and so a lot of car makers will uh, for instance, uh, have uh, model years where you know once once every year or once every nine months they will then do a wholesale change of of the product comes down the line and you know accommodate on the manufacturing line what these changes are, and it, it as as we've sort of seen at Tesla, it, in my opinion, a better way of doing it is to introduce the changes as they're ready, right? Because why would you produce a a product if you already know that you can make it better? And in a lot of cases, to introduce these sorts of um, continuous updates, you can no longer work within the constraints of traditional industrial uh, manufacturing equipment where every single thing has to be programmed to precision because otherwise the equipment can't perform its task because, again, it doesn't actually understand what the task is. It doesn't see, I need to take this module and place it here. It says, I need to go here, pick up something, go there, drop it. And that's a that, that that's sort of the understanding. It, there's no there's no deeper understanding of what that process actually entails and why that movement now needs to change if the car turns into an, an SUV from a from a sedan. Just as an example. And so, in 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 a lot of these these cases, the the challenge uh, to to make this more um, to make this a little bit more adaptable is exactly in getting these uh, products set up. So today, for example, to deploy a, um, a an automation cell, you know, it's it's installed, and then there's months of commissioning work of that, where it's just run in sort of these dry cycles, and then readjust it, and it's kind of tested, and it's readjusted again, and then it starts slowly ramping up, right? So the the time it takes for like a whole factory to go from scratch with with automation equipment you know, to some kind of production, uh, you know, higher production output. It stretches like from a year to two years to three years, right? Because all of this needs to be stepwise uh, increased to perform the same thing over and over again. And we think there's 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 just a better way to do it, where the equipment and the controls for the equipment understands what the product is that we're building and how to build it, so that if it changes a little bit, the system itself can adapt to still assemble it correctly. And that's what humans are very good at. And uh, even, even during that the, the Model Three production ramp that I mentioned earlier, even Elon admitted uh, at that point that you know that humans are underrated in a lot of lot of regards. But they're not underrated because humans are somehow inherently able to build to assemble things better than robots can. Robots are still the kings of assembly. It's just that humans are adaptable, right? You you don't have to spend a lot of time to tell a human precisely in steps how to do something then if it changes it it, it fa- the process fails right the, the human can adapt to it where you know the process the, the part for example ends up a slightly different location in your station the human is fine with it whereas a machine is not and that's the the sort of the gap that we're trying to bridge here with our technology so what what i'm hearing uh, from you lucas is like it's like smart manufacturing it's almost like <clears throat> you know augmenting what a human might do so if you replace part a this the manufacturing like process end to end understands the impact and the consequence of swapping out part A and its implication on like P, Z, X, and Y as an example. Exactly. Okay. It's Got a, it. Sort of treats the entire project as a kind of a system to be assembled rather than a set of tasks, if that makes sense. I get it. Yeah, yeah. We always rise to the level of our fall to the level of our systems. We never rise to the level of our goals. Um well at least that's what I found. <laughs> Uh, so, very, very applicable to like habits with people in general as well. I know, right? Exactly. Systems are habits, routines, things like that, rituals. But this is what we can talk about later. So, uh, Lucas, uh, you touched on this idea of first principles. And I know I've heard uh, Elon Musk talk about that. Like if you're going to design a cheaper rocket and make it reusable or create a self-driving car or do anything hardcore, hard science related, if you want to solve that thing or that problem, like you got to get into like a, a mindset of first principles design. 
uh, curious to get uh, your view having worked with first principles and working with first principles and the design and application of these sorts of things in manufacturing. Um, what does it mean? Uh, first off, like when you talk about first principles, like I've got no idea, like what does that actually mean? Sounds smart. Don't know what it means. <laughs> uh, but uh, what, and then like, how do you like apply first principles in a manufacturing context? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, it's it, the so the context by itself is is sort of more the the you know, the the stage where you define the the thing in, in in more detail. But in terms of first principles in general, it's and as silly as that sounds, is you you kind of look at something from the ground up, right? It's the the whole idea is that you're starting effectively with a blank slate, and you have some kind of goal that you're trying to reach, and what you're doing is you're developing effectively the path using the best technology and the best thinking available today to get to that goal uh, rather than uh, taking sort of the more common approaches we have these components here we've used them for the last 20 years we're going to sort of assemble them into something that gets to that point so it's kind of a rethinking right and one one big saying that that i remember elon was always fond of is uh, find a way or make one hmm. and that is I think the core to working with first principles in manufacturing or any other area is that you know you you you're in your engineering and your thinking is solid enough to where you start from scratch, you go to a goal, and then you find you find a way there, right? And sometimes that means you pick something off the shelf because it's good, it's good at what it does, right? Otherwise, it means that there is no way to be found because it right now doesn't exist, and so you make it, you create that little bit of technology to get to that point. And uh, so that's that's sort of where uh, where where we are uh, as a company is, you know, we have have that goal of this, uh, this manufacturing system that can adapt itself to the product that's that's coming down the line. But right now, we're we can't directly find a way there. So we have to make make one by creating these foundational technologies to get to that point. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, so one of the things that I'm aware of is that doing like manual assembly work is kind of getting more prohibitive from a labor cost perspective. So like if you, you know, especially when you start doing things at scale, like producing a car, like Tesla does or what have you. Um, and so if that's the case, like um, is, is what you're doing helping manufacturing companies reduce labor costs? Um, and if it is, um, like what do you hope is the is the intended outcome you know if it's are you trying to reduce labor basically and you know or like reduce the cost and or is it about freeing up humans to think more strategically about design using first principles for example if i think in a way it's getting uh, allowing humans to return to what they're really good at and uh, you know you could argue that humans are good at assembly work because of flexibility but fundamentally he, the human body is not made to do the same operation over and over again, and right, and so you have a lot of fatigue injuries uh, for workers because it's also really hard to make every product that in in a uh, hundred percent ergonomically friendly friendly way. And so in cars, for example, you have you know airbags on the upper upper rails, and like to get to it, like you reach in and you sort of look up, and like there's there's just no way to make it ergonomic because it has to be in that location for its function. And so what, uh, our, what our technology is enabling is uh, to, to sort of shift the humans from 
these kinds of tasks where they are potentially not the best way to do them and take them into the uh, the realms where humans are really good at, and that is fundamentally problem solving, right? It's kind of looking at what is the product that we're trying to make? How do we make this product better? And you know, at some point, maybe AI will get to, to the stage where uh, you, know, you press a button and the perfect product design will come out. But it, that, that I think is a little bit further away than a factory that just builds the product from raw materials and the raw materials out, right? It's like it's a whole different level of complexity uh, all of a sudden that, that that you're tackling there. So our 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 thinking is uh, that uh, you know we want to one yes reduce the labor cost per unit uh, because with increased automation you can now have a factory that's much more efficient where for the um, same amount of labor that you have you're not producing many more cars. For example, and ultimately, what we've seen in the last uh, however many years, uh, for as long as your know, robots were being introduced and uh, kind of you know, displacing labor, it it hasn't really happened, right? Like the companies were getting more efficient, and so they're producing more, and so there's still the the number of jobs were still sort of growing worldwide, right? It's mm -hmm. just in a lot of cases the jobs were shifting a little bit from just simply you know picking up something putting it in to now more complicated things so now yeah i have to program this this robot i have to define these sort of process steps i have to take these things that are really hard for a computer to do but very easy for a human to do uh, by taking them out of the things that the equipment the robots can do that the human is you know perhaps not the best suited for right got it so what I also know, and I think it would be important to share with our audience around the world is like, you're not just about taking existing technology and like putting it into a manufacturing process. You're actually developing technologies yourself that makes manufacturing more efficient, flexible, and fast. So um, could you just paint a picture of like, what exactly is this? Because like, <laughs> like if you're developing like your own technologies to shove into somebody else's manufacturing process. For me, that's a pretty hard thing to do, I would suggest. Um, and and if you are uh, developing or because you are developing your own technologies, like why aren't, I mean, is it a case of like you aggregate, like, you know, Tesla's like great at aggregating technologies to create the car or the Model X or what have you, to my knowledge. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but what you're also doing is developing technologies that go, hey, you know, you guys don't have this. So along with the aggregation, we have our own tech, you know, our own hardware component that does X. Um, walk us through that. Like, why is it so important to develop, to not only aggregate, but to develop your own technologies too? So, uh, uh, so you, you mentioned Tesla and, uh, you know, the, the Tesla in general, as far as car companies go, as far as uh, manufacturers go, they're, they're pretty vertically integrated. Uh, so for a lot of the, the Model 3, for example, most of the electronics are designed in-house. And uh, you know, we've seen, for example, recently with, with the pandemic, a lot of car makers were shutting down the factories. And you know, Tesla, to some degree, had to reduce the, the production volumes as well. But they're much easier for them to get back up and running by replacing some specific components within their own vertically integrated product to uh, with with you know parts that were actually available during the pandemic. And so that that's sort of the level of vertical integration uh, gives the benefit of. Uh, having effectively the the equipment that you need specifically for the job that you're trying to do, and so this kind of goes back a little bit more into the uh, the, the the whole first principles thinking and rethinking of the manufacturing process. And that you know we're we're not opposed to uh, using existing technologies where it makes sense, but in a lot of cases the the existing technologies are sort of a uh, a almost a compromise for tasks that are a little bit different than what you're really trying to solve. And they're a little bit different because they came from a different place, right? They came as sort of this incremental change on top of uh, how, how the manufacturing process has been has been done for you know, the last cen century plus, right? And in in our case, we because we're trying to rethink this from, from the ground up, there's a lot of these, these kind of technologies that are, we cannot take off the shelf. And so in those cases, we do want to take those in-house and develop those ourselves so that we can solve the problem, the fundamental problem that we're trying to solve in the, in a, in the right way. And uh, this, this sort of vertical integration, kind of as you also hinted on, is uh, gives us more flexibility in terms of how we attack these kinds of manufacturing challenges it, itself, because we can now define equipment and create equipment that is really well suited 
to the task that we envision in our solution that we need. And uh, so in, in that sense, it's a very powerful thing. And the first set of hardware, because we, we come from uh, in, in, in our, in our experience, vision is a, I mean, humans, to be honest, use vision as, uh, as the primary sense for experiencing the world. And we, we do think that vision is a very, very important, uh, aspect of making manufacturing smart, uh, fundamentally because it's easier to detect with vision a lot of things, uh, about the manufacturing process that then lets you act upon that. And so the very first product that we're creating is a, uh, a very powerful and small uh, smart camera that sort of blends the uh, the a little bit of the the kind of Tesla efficiency with some of the thinking behind Apple's uh, kind of it just works sort of thing. I mean, except AirPods, but that's a different story. Uh, but you know, usually, you know, like Apple technology, like you you it like you you use it as a tool to get something done. You don't use it as the, like you're playing with the thing to get it to do something, right? And uh, we we want to bring some of that to the to the industrial to the industrial manufacturing process where our uh, you know our smart camera uh, can be up and running on the line you know within minutes uh, because uh, you know we abstract a lot of these this difficulty away. So Lucas, that's called the CyberSight camera. The first product is yes, uh, it is called CyberSight. CyberSight. Do you have it there on your desk? I do not have it here, unfortunately. No, I, I wish I, I, I remember to bring it. You know, you must always show, you mustn't tell. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I apologize. <clears throat> no, don't worry, it's all good. So just on that, so let's talk about your CyberSight uh, camera because this is a technology that you've developed on your, you know, as a team. Um, and maybe what I'd like mm -hmm. to do for is for our audience around the world is to paint a picture of like, you know, like how would how would the CyberSight camera, uh, you know, like, be integrated into the manufacturing process. So as an example, would it be fair to say, uh, Lucas, that if you put that camera into a manufacturing line, it would be able to visually see um, what is going on in the manufacturing process and then make suggestions based on data, essentially now AI and ML, to reallocate and automate some of the production steps so that you know manufacturing companies can reduce labor costs by 10% like overnight, as an example. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a very very good way of characterizing it. Thank you for summar summarizing that uh, that for me. Uh, the uh, so one of these these studies that we've we've uh, performed with uh, some of these pre production units on the camera is on a, um, a a manufacturing line that makes a very popular laptop from a from a U.S. Uh, laptop manufacturer, and the uh, we've we've placed uh, these cameras at uh, at every station on the line. It's almost a hundred stations or so, and. On these stations, the cameras were capturing a lot of data about the uh, the production associates and how they're moving, and and you know which parts they're grasping, and how they're making that assembly. And from that, from that all that that treasure trove of data, you can do a lot of optimizations and a lot of uh, inferences around the the way the manufacturing process is designed. And the way the manufacturing process should be designed, because all of a sudden you can now, with all the data, identify uh, these kinds of, um, uh, I, I don't want to say, call them necessarily wasted motions, but these kinds of uh, non-value added parts uh, of the process itself, like, you know, reach it, turning around and reaching for a part to put on the part, right? like you, to, to put on the, the product. So, you know, you, you, you start developing these kinds of suggestions where, you know, you take this thing and you put it on the other side. And you could argue that, uh, you know, a, a industrial engineer can spend a month in a factory and come up with most of these things. And you probably be right. A, a good industrial engineer should be able to do that. But, the special thing about uh, these cameras is uh, the way we're approaching this problem is we're collecting this data continuously. So we can not only start, uh, you know, start sort of doing these experiments where we propose different changes and start getting into a, a sort of global optimum from a, from a local optimum, but we can track a lot more information in general about how this production process works. And we can start look, uh, getting information about, you know, at which station are these defects uh, introduced and you make a change on the product. And all of a sudden, this entire thing sort of starts again with the previously learned information. So you don't have to spend another six months in the factory to optimize it for that next product. And in this case, in this specific um, instance that uh, that I think you mentioned as well, is, uh, you know, we we're able to 
uh, to with these cameras and that sort of optimization uh, alg algorithm afterwards, we're able to reduce the labor uh, required for that production line by about 10%. And the really cool part about this hardware, and this is why we're so excited about having that kind of vertical integration power in hardware, is we have an OTA plant for these cameras, so over-the-air update, uh, that we plan on pushing to them uh, probably end of this year, maybe early next year. And uh, that will almost immediately allow an, a reduction, an additional reduction with no additional hardware and another reduction of uh, somewhere around 6, six to 6 to 7%. Uh, of labor with just that and it's uh yeah it's 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 really cool i think the, the nerd in me is, is is really excited about about this hey lucas you went full nerd real quick dude so. <laughs> <laughs> i i take that as a compliment i guess yes you should you absolutely <laughs> should uh so um so you know the other thing i think that's really interesting about like what i'm hearing is is that this isn't just about hardware like if you think about you know uh your 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 camera your cyberside camera if you think about i've been showing videos while you've been talking of manufacturing processes from different companies uh, in the background um and you know if you think manufacturing i think car i think robots and steel right uh but there's really like a huge software component uh, to this mm -hmm. right where you can have great hardware but like if you're going to automate anything you've got to have a really fantastic marriage between both the hardware and software ecosystem together. And so what what I'd like to um, maybe ask you is like, how important is it to think about, uh, you know, this problem of automated manufacturing or smart manufacturing processes or systems um, in a more holistic way, like to think about the thing holistically, because, you know, it's like you think about automating something, it's like, well, take step you know, 372 to 376, let's make that just one step, right? Rather than six. So, you know what I mean? Like you're thinking quite, mm -hmm. you know, units, you're thinking like a unit economics scientist, right? It's like one, 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 whatever. And you put one in, you get three out or you, you know, reducing three by one, whatever the case might be. But really this thing is like, you've got to think about holistically, how do we solve this problem using, uh, you know, uh, first principles design? How important is it, uh, Lucas, from your perspective, you know, to think holistically about a problem? I think I think it's really the only way to make uh, make uh, impactful and lasting change to to any any kind of problem, whether it's manufacturing or anything else. Uh, we've we've been very fortunate in that uh, most of our careers we've spent at the. Uh, system level. We've uh, always been able to dive into the details where we needed to, but we always had that sort of system level view. And in uh, one, one, one little maybe anecdote is most uh, of us worked at uh, legacy automakers or the, the big auto uh, makers in the Midwest. And what always struck me as a, a little counterproductive there is, and this was sort of before I started, you know, architecting uh, entire cars and and whatever else. Uh, what struck me a little bit counterproductive is you had all these groups, right? And there was always this activity. Uh, I think that uh, some car makers called it VAVE. I don't remember what that stands for, value added something else. Um, but uh, it, it was basically looking at your products and then suggesting cost savings. And so what we would inevitably have is you would have these 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 groups kind of uh, suggesting only savings for their specific purview of the car. And what uh, was almost I don't I, I don't recall a single instance where it was genuinely considered that if you save 10 cents on this part, but you're increasing someone else's cost who sits you know, two buildings away by 30 cents. You haven't actually saved anything, right? You've actually made the product objectively worse, and there's no real, no real sort of system level approach to this. And so, one thing that that uh, we've we've uh, we've done in in our time at Tesla is sort of look at the product in a more holistic way. Uh, we started looking at you know, the, the the different components, how they come together, what function they perform, and what is sort of the globally most efficient way of making this rather than uh, you know just improving part by part by part and so in a lot of cases the design decisions that we made were you know increasing the cost and increasing complexity of some components 
because that disproportionately decreased the complexity and cost of other components. So that made the entire product better. So it's sort of the argument like in mathematics, uh, where uh, I, I know my 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 uh, teacher and professor will always harp on this is, you know, make sure you don't find the local optimum, you find the global optimum, right? Because sometimes it's easy to get stuck in these mm. uh, locally optimal conditions where you sort of lose sight of the entire system. And so uh, we, we think it's it's absolutely vital to think of the, the process from a system perspective, because that lets you uh, understand uh, the sort of where one where the inefficiencies are, but two more more than that allows you to find uh, how to best solve those inefficiencies. And uh, kind of coming back to the the, the you know vertical integration and the, the software and hardware, uh, I, I think the, that sort of worldview that we have makes it very important for us to have hardware that is tailored for the software that we're running. On these, but also to have software that is tailored to the hardware that we're running. So it's like this this uh, this loop, in a way where uh, one is uh, always tailored to the other, and that, in our experience, creates a better system. It's like it's like you're looking at. Uh, I mean, I I'm going to bring up Apple uh, one more time. Like the the sort of the, the system level approach of operating system plus hardware lets Apple do some things that other uh, you know other computer makers or other phone makers or whoever else can't easily copy it takes a while to get back to that point right and it's sort of the it allows you to solve uh the problems in in new and fundamentally better ways so um i want to talk quickly to you about like some some founder stuff because i think what you're doing is like ridiculous (laughs) like in the sense of like how hard it is it's like i wouldn't even know where to begin um and so um (laughs) it's like it's really hard (laughs) you know what i mean We've had, uh, so we're, um, both Al and I were, were first time founders, right? And so we've been told by investors that we're, we're kind of doing the, the startup thing and on hard mode, uh, because it's about like everything that we're doing, uh, we're sort of tackling in, in a, in a very complex uh, or a complicated manner because, you know, fundamentally we think this is the right way to do it. I know. Another thing, I've had like a few uh, hardware founders on the show, like Zygo. Uh, they do like an underwater streaming headset for swimmers using bone technology and you know, da, 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 all sorts of stuff. Um, <clears throat> and basically anyone that's done anything hardware is like they're looking at a ratio of difficulty of like 10, <laughs> 10 to 1. Um, so, I mean… So, but also like the hard things are the most valuable things, you know, and I think if it, and that's, and and the reason why it's the hard things are more valuable is because not everybody can do it, right? So it's another reason why like startups in general are so valuable to investors and venture capitalists, because if they can solve a real problem, they can start to scale. Like obviously everybody wins, especially if you're an investor. Um, But I'd love to maybe get your view, like, there's obviously the external, like the hard thing about building this business, um, but then there's also the um, the internal, right? There's like this, oh shit, I got to get up every day and solve a hard thing every single day. Like I spoke to this founder one, uh, earlier this week and he was like, dude, like I have more bad days than good days. And I'm like, who chooses that? you know, for, 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 for their lives. Like you, you know what I mean? Like you want to have some level of peace, <laughs> you know, that's like the secret to real success is just to be peaceful in your life. Like I'm good with what I, where I'm at. Uh, but it seems to me like you're at the coal face and, you know, I'd love to maybe get your view on what stands out for you in your business as being like the hard thing about hard things. <laughs> I mean, we've we've uh, we've been called adrenaline junkies uh, for that that specific reason that uh, we you know we we choose to to do something. But I, honestly, it I I can't say that it's more hard more bad days than good days because it's it's still exciting, right? Like in in our case, like we we still we still fundamentally believe in what we're doing to the point where this does it doesn't that all the the hard stuff is not a barrier in in a way to prevent us or feel, make us feel bad about it is it's more of almost a um more of a like a motivation to like get to these things right because fundamentally uh we've we've been we've been very lucky in that we've uh as, as a team founding team we've spent what almost a quarter century uh at tesla between all of us we've spent uh over over a decade at uh big auto and like we've we've built really complex products before we've built really complex hardware we've built really complex software uh, like we we understand the challenges and we're 
it it doesn't phase us uh, anymore so much. Like it, don't please don't don't take this as me saying that this is easy uh, to do. It's definitely not, uh, and uh, we still uh, you know it still takes us um, considerable effort to get these things out. But it's not uh, it, it it's not as daunting for us uh, as uh, you know as as it probably should be. And I I think I'm partially also glad for that because it, it doesn't have that effect of scaring us away uh, from mm. these these sort of challenges. So um, I don't know what, just a, a question on like, have you, have you, you've heard of Rillion, right? Like the EV company, like the Tesla competitor, Rillion. Have you heard of them before? <clears throat> so, uh, do you mean Rivian? Rivian, Rivian, Rivian. Yes. See, thank you. Thank you. See, what a difference a letter makes. See, I could never do manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> could barely get the words right. Uh, but uh, interesting thing like that, I've just got this press release that came, that came out like not too long ago, towards the end of last year. Curious to get your view on it because it was Rivian's IPO. They were valued at like $100 billion, uh, putting them just behind Tesla. But like they had only made like 100 cars or something like that. Uh, and, and everyone was like, what the hell? Like, how do you become a $100 billion company when you hardly have any products to hit the road? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's a weird thing. Uh, so I'm curious to get your view on valuations because I know you you know, you mentioned like uh, you've raised 12 million and like your first time founders, that's a huge success uh, on its own. Um, and so I'm curious to get your view on like, on, on the role of valuation in, in, in a startup such as Industrial Next. Like, um, so there's a, there's a few components to this. So one is borrowing from the Rivian uh, example. How important is it, or how do, you, how do you value something like what you're doing? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like you're selling a SaaS com- subscription thing and it's easy. It's like, well, I'm doing like, you know, my, 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 I'm increasing MRR by like 30% a month or whatever the case is, or maybe my ARR is increasing by, you know, 300% year on year. It's like, that's easy, right? To go to an investor and go, mm-hmm. yo, like, this is where, where I'm at and here's what your potential upside is going to be. Like, you guys are in this difficult component unit economic space you know um and so the way that you would value something like with what you're doing is i would imagine very different to a SaaS company um and if that is that the case from your perspective and 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 what's your thoughts on valuation processes around like something that you're doing i think it's definitely uh, different than valuing something uh, something like like a you know SaaS SaaS company it's uh, the, the the thing about hardware, right? Especially the moment you you start including hardware anywhere in the product, is your um, cycles. Uh, your cycle times are much longer, right? With with software, it's very easy to push out a product and then make a massive change to it over you know a day, and then you push out the next product. Right? You're releasing basically the next the next thing. With hardware, you're are you're already by default locked into at very best this you know two month three month cycle. Just because it takes you that long to, you know, create a design files, get it manufactured, because you know, at, at our stage, like it doesn't make sense to to manufacture all these products ourselves, and then you know, get it back, bring it up, and then test it, right? And so I, I think the the, the valuations for uh, companies, uh, you know, like like even in Rivian, in that sense, I think uh, they they include a very big component of uh, what is uh, the the sort of the end state of the company, right? Where's that company going? What's the that that sort of that grand vision behind it? Where's the the potential uh, for this? Because sort of as as I think you mentioned uh, as well, it's including uh, you know including all these different components and that that sort of level of vertical integration. It provides for a um, foundation of a very very large uh, end result, right? At, at the end, a sort of very big challenge that you're tackling in a very big uh, and, and fundamentally global market. And so I think uh, the valuations for that sort of thing have to account for uh, that that sort of uh, ultimate reach, right? Of, of this solution that you're creating. Uh, that, that maybe for, you know, a SaaS company is not, uh, you know, obviously, there's always uh, there's there's always that that's sort of the big vision and that that big endpoint that you want to get to. But uh, there's it's a little bit more, uh, I think, uh, it's part more possible to define it uh, in in that sense. Well, it's an interesting conversation point, right? Because of the market where it's at, like there's all I ever see now and hear from from like investors and VCs and like hedge fund people and startups. Also, is like 
you know, VCs now are looking at profit, not not valuation, you know, given the market. So it's kind of like the series B, C, D VCs are moving earlier in the investment life cycle. So given the market, like it's, you're not going to scale as fast as you thought you would like two years ago. Um, and so there, there are multiple uh, exit outcomes is obviously under threat. So they move earlier. So let the market like recover. And then, you know, those startups then move late stage and then, you know, blah, blah. And then they get a bigger share and da, 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 da. At least that's my kind of, my kind of thinking around like VC money and like kind of what's going on here. Um, but I'm curious to um, maybe have a bit of fun with you, just cognizant of time. So here we go. So uh, you guys are not doing the hard thing about hard things. Um, and I'm going to give you the, the keys to the map around show time machine, right? So I want you to go back to like day one when you're like, cool, we're going to go do this industrial next story. Um, and if you think about all the failure, all the learnings, all the hard things that you've overcome, what is the one piece of advice you would give yourself on day one about building this uh, startup industrial next? Oh, shit. Uh, I think the single biggest uh, would probably be believe in your vision. Mm. Uh, it's very easy. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, and again, this is not, not unique to startups by, by any means, uh, but it, it, there's def definitely a big element of this in startups. There's, um, there's always uh, a lot of uh, advice that's available. And it's hard sometimes to uh, to pick and choose the the sets of advice that you follow. And so I think the having a very strong uh, kind of north star, uh, that a very uh, strong sort of guiding uh, guiding view, guiding. I don't want to say guiding light, uh, but like this this sort of uh, um, like this idea, this vision, right, that you stick to. I think is very important and. Uh, like in, in our case, like we've, 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 you know, sort of rethought a few things. And, you know, it's, to some extent, it's also common for startups, especially in the beginnings, like, you know, looking at uh, how do you shape the idea, right? How do you, do you need to pivot? Do you need to, you know, do, do these things? But I think, I think it's also very important to, uh, to pay attention to that sort of uh, guiding, that the guiding vision that you have developed through whatever your experience is that led you to that startup. Uh, to um, to to sort of still recognize that yeah, yes this this is ultimately where we want to end up and now how do we break this whole problem down into smaller steps to get there right mm -hmm. so well now i have to ask you like what is your vision <laughs> like <laughs> like thanks for that uh, but uh, like what what, do you, what is the difference you hope to make uh, in the world you know in let's just say 5 10 years time the, the difference that we want we want to make is uh, is actually enable genuinely automated manufacturing for uh, for complex goods uh, like EVs like uh, eVTOL uh, as they're going to in in our mind uh, become more and more popular in the next ten years or so or actually start taking off in the next ten years um, and uh, we want to do that effectively from uh, taking raw materials in and getting finished product out of the factory and we want to be able to do this uh, worldwide. Uh, so this this is sort of our grand vision: make manufacturing uh, make manufacturing easy for companies. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'm super excited to see where you guys are going to go. It's it's pretty pretty awesome. I get to meet rad people like you. Um, and so let's wrap this up, uh, Lucas. Why do you do what you do? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Like, there's hard things you could have done, like many many other things, but you chose this one. <laughs> so, what gets you out of bed in the morning? I, I, my, my, my sort of enjoyment, general enjoyment and, uh, ner uh you know, nerding out about manufacturing sort of started when I, uh, when I, I mean, I've, I've been to the, to the factory back in, in the, uh, in big auto in, in Detroit before, but the Tesla factory was different when, when we got there because it was more, uh, it was, it was treated more as a product in a way where, we, you know, it was, you could have a direct like, impact on what, what you were, it's hard, a little hard to describe. And I think I'm doing, I'm absolutely not doing it justice right now, but it was, uh, it was sort of a, a much, you, you felt like you were more in, in that process uh, itself. And that, that sort of awakened in me a, a lot of, uh, a lot of this, a uh, lot of enjoyment of sort of being able to, uh, plan like this complicated, uh, you know, Rube Goldberg, Goldberg machine that 
magically, you know, putting putting in some components and you get like a car out. And like there's just there's mind blowing. And then you start diving into this and you start looking at it. And you know, the engineer in me sort of takes over and it's like, oh, this this process, this should change. Like this needs to get better. And then you start looking at it, and it's like, oh, but if we change these five things to some to two other things, then we completely change the everything. And it sort of becomes this uh this almost like this this passionate puzzle uh, playing uh that that you're you're doing, right? You're taking these challenges and it's not, you know, you're you're not doing it for the for the money. We we we're not paying ourselves nearly enough just yet. But the it, you're doing it because you're enjoying the challenge. You're doing it because you're you you really want this to exist. You believe in it. That you believe in in this in the thing that you're building so much that you really want to get it out in the world. And that's that's sort of what drives us at Industrial Next to get these technologies out and get them developed. Similar motivations to me, dude. Um, your thing is like <laughs> hardware. My thing is like founder stories. You know, getting those, get the next story out there. Come on. Uh, yeah, so I think I, following uh, following one's passion, I think, is is really important. Because then it's not even work. Yeah, it it like it, this is why I why I struggle to say like that. There's more bad days than good because like not it's not that days are good or bad. It's just they're days were filled with challenges that we have to you know, jump into and overcome. And when we overcome them, it feels great. If we don't, we usually take a look at, oh, we should probably should have done this better. And the next challenge comes and we do it better. And so it's it's like this continuous process in a way, like this learning process. Absolutely. Lucas, uh, Pankow, mate, great to have you here. Great show. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed getting your story out into the world. And really Thank excited. You so much for having me. Mate, and really excited to see where you're going to go. I think, uh, you know, it's very, very interesting. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you all again soon. Ciao. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.